everyone. Welcome to the next episode in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. My name is Sara Nazem, and I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain Monarch. I'll be hosting our podcast today, which focuses on the topic of suicide postvention practices within medical settings. We're joined by Dr. Jeff Sung and Dr. Michael Myers, who will be helping us better understand the importance of suicide postvention practices within the medical setting including tips on how to support employees and incorporate suicide postvention into administrative procedures. Thanks so much to Jeff and Michael for joining us today. Let's begin by having you both provide a brief introduction of yourselves. Um, and Jeff, we'll have you go first. Sure, uh, my name is Jeff Sung. I'm a psychiatrist in Seattle, Washington. I work part-time for the University of Washington at uh, a clinic that's a satellite clinic of Harborview Medical Center called the Pioneer Square Clinic. It's through a Healthcare for the Homeless Network grant, and so I work uh, with uh, people who are currently homeless uh, or recently in housing. And then I have a private practice, and then I also conduct workshops in suicide risk assessment, management, uh, and treatment sort of throughout uh, my career and at different times, including in training. I have had patients die by suicide and also worked on teams where other team members have had that happen. And also in my private practice, I will sometimes consult with other clinicians who have had patients die by suicide. Great. And Michael, do you want to give us an introduction of yourself? Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Michael Myers. I'm a psychiatrist uh, like Jeff. Uh, I'm a, a professor of clinical psychiatry at SUNY Downstate um, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, my introduction to suicide was uh, was uh, when I was very young. I was 19 years old and lost uh, my roommate, another medical student. I was a medical student as well uh, to suicide, and I uh, that was in 1962, and it's really interesting that we're talking postvention today because this is near and dear to me because there was absolutely none um, at that time. And I don't think our situation was unique. This was a subject that just wasn't talked about. It was really an aberration. And I didn't know at that time that that would lead me sort of into a career, uh, uh, obviously in medicine, but then in psychiatry and then with a sort of subspecialty in suicidology. And so like Jeff, I have lost um, patients to suicide as well in my career, both uh, which was half-time private practice and ha half-time doing hospital-based work um, at a teaching hospital. And uh, so I uh, have been very interested in this subject that uh, for those individuals who experience suicide loss, that there's something available for them both personally as well as for the institution. Well, thank you both so much again for joining us today. I think just in your introductions alone, you've already spoken to the importance and um, rationale actually for the topic and uh, many of the reasons why we have this whole series on suicide postvention. I mean, hitting on elements um, like how common we know it is for trainees or those in um, training settings to lose patients to suicide, and then also speaking to this interaction between professional and personal losses as well. So we'll probably dig into that a little bit more as we move through the podcast. But just to orient our um, listeners to the, the topic of medical settings, I was wondering if um, one of you would like to share an example of what suicide postvention practices would look like in a medical setting. And that could be based on some of your own experiences with different settings that you've worked at, 
could also be a combination of sort of what you would recommend for um, the best case scenario for what this would look like in a medical setting. Oftentimes in medical settings, I think that there's multidisciplinary teams. And so it could be a variety of clinicians working with a range of patients. And then the, the information will come in through p- potentially varying sources. So it could be a family member who calls in. It could be a patient who doesn't show up to an appointment and then um, they're trying to reach the patient and then finding out from a family member. Um, it could be uh, being contacted by the police. It could be um, finding out in the news. And so the information comes in through a variety of sources. And then wherever the information uh, comes in, and that's what initiates the, the response. And this idea of talking about suicide postvention in a medical setting, so in contrast to maybe like in private practice, in a medical setting, oftentimes there are simultaneously clinical factors and then administrative factors related to the institution. And so organizing a response to it requires looking at the clinical factors and then also the administrative factors. So the information comes in. Um, sometimes through the treating clinician, sometimes not. And then the treating clinician can notify a supervisor and that can activate um, notifying additional clinical leadership, administrative leadership, forming a team, and then figuring out, talking about uh, the the information comes in that uh, a, a patient or client has died by suicide. And then the agency can respond by organizing a team that includes the administrative and clinical leadership and then make a decision on how to proceed uh, from there. And so typically, some of the first set of tasks include uh, immediate responsibilities and notifications. And so from the administrative side, oftentimes it's notifying hospital administration and risk management. And then from the clinical side, it's often notifying other clinicians who might have been involved in the care of that patient and then uh, making subsequent contact with surviving family members. And so that sort sort of takes us through an an initial response. Some of the, the subsequent factors will include, again, sort of the separation between administrative and clinical, the idea of Uh, looking at administrative case review or immediate safety requirements. And then uh, from the clinical side, providing support to the clinician in completing these tasks, like completing the medical record, contacting the family, um, and helping the clinician interact with those administrative factors. Because sometimes the clinician will be brought into uh, d- discussing details of what happened in the case to ensure that, like, any immediate safety requirements uh, are, are fulfilled. That's so helpful, Jeff. I think that aspect of both clinical and administrative factors being part of a response. Uh, Michael, I was wondering if you had any additional thoughts on why it may not be enough to just do the administrative factors that Jeff started to highlight there. Like, what? why is there importance to having both these clinical factors um, attended to in addition to the administrative processes that we know occur in medical settings? Uh, yes, thank you for the question. And also, Jeff, thank you, because this is what you just, your last statement is a segue into this. And I'm probably I'm preempting probably something you were going to say, that there are times uh, when the, the administrative um, 
systems, legal perhaps, a critical incident, a sentinel event, uh, all of those sorts of things can actually uh, muddle the psychological uh, response of the of the individual or if or if the patient for instance was being looked after by a team it can um, what's, what's I'm, try, I'm searching for like may, like derail or disrupt uh, what you know what would be called you know the psychological uh, reaction to um, you know to a tragic event like this a critical event like this uh, but but as Jeff is suggesting, when when you have um, something in place, which is key, uh, it, almost like a roadmap or a template, that really helps tremendously. And there's a team approach to this so that individuals can be dealing with all of those types of institutional systemic factors and then leave the clinical to the individual who is in need as well as the other person. And... Um, that's really what's so very important, uh, even though at the time some individuals, their coping response may be actually to tend to kind of the busy work of this, that that is not that they're not going to deal with their psychological reaction, uh, but the way they're psychologically built is that they're most comfortable dealing with all the business aspects of the loss first, and then it will hit them a little bit later what they're actually going through psychologically. Yeah, I think that's so true. One of the themes that we've had across our different episodes is that there's definitely not a kind of one-size-fits-all when it comes to all the kind of personal as well as professional reactions that people experience after a loss. Jeff, I'm wondering, especially because you had mentioned um, doing some consultation with other um, private practice providers, and I think both of you can speak to this, so we'll definitely have you both um, share your thoughts. But I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners about what some of the major drawbacks are to setting up practices that only attend to the administrative piece so that there's no room for the clinical or emotional piece that happens with suicide postvention. Have you seen some examples of some of the, the major consequences that come up when we only administer the administrative factors? Sure. The, the administrative factors, as we, as we have discussed, sometimes they're, I mean, they're, they're absolutely necessary because this is, we're talking about the healthcare delivery systems that we work in. And so we're always talking about administration um, the legal factors, and this is the delivery system that supports our ability to provide the care. And so those are always going to be uh, absolutely necessary. So the, the additional uh, clinical elements, and I think that, you know, Mike can talk more about this too. I think that the, the effect of the suicide loss, and I am often uh, quoting or using the terminology from Ted Reinerson in his work on violent death of spotlighted dying that suicide loss has this really focused traumatic quality about it of uh, the re reliving the death in your mind, feeling very guilty, uh, remorseful about what was not done, feeling uh, angry about other people who might have let this happen, so sort of retaliatory narrative, and feeling like this can never happen again. And so the, these different narratives following violent death have a powerful emotional effect 
And so these administrative proceedings are sometimes uh, occurring simultaneously while someone is experiencing these powerful emotional effects. And so while someone is experiencing these emotional effects with these narratives in their mind, feeling intense feelings of guilt, an administrative case review is looking at what could have been done, what could have been done differently, um, what are immediate changes that have to take place. And so when that factual information, which is absolutely necessary, gets layered onto a mind and emotional system that is coping with the effect of violent death, the, the, the mind and emotional system can instantly take it up and interpret it according to, and this is what's wrong with me, this is what's wrong with the work that I do. And I feel like in the mental health field, we use so much of our, um, our life experience and our personality in the work that when there's uh, a negative outcome like a suicide death, it feels much more like a personal failure rather than the, the treatment fails. That if we are administering medical treatments with a medication, I think that it's easier to think that something external hasn't worked. Whereas in the mental health field, we feel like we have personally failed and there's something wrong with us. So I think that um, acknowledging these uh, the emotional effects and the way that administrative proceedings can activate these uh, feelings that are going on already after violent death is, uh, as we've dis been discussing, is such an important element of it. And I have found when I have uh, done some suicide case reviews, either with individual clinicians or with teams, that it's actually important to be explicit about that. And uh, that saying at the beginning of the um, uh, of the session to say this is not focusing on blaming anyone or the care that was provided. This is trying to learn from what happened. And then as the discussion is continuing, again, I just want to make sure that we understand this is not focused on blaming anyone. This is uh, looking at our healthcare delivery system, systems of care. How can we support people? And then, and then you end the, the session with, you know, and again, I just really want to make sure that people understand this is not focused on blaming anyone. This is looking at our healthcare delivery systems and trying to improve our treatments. Great. Michael, do you have anything to add to that in terms of some of your experiences or things that yeah. you've seen um, when perhaps a, a medical setting will err too heavily on just the administrative case review and, and not attend to this emotional kind of psychological piece? I'm going to try to answer your question with a little bit of a digression. Um, and it builds on what Jeff has just said. Thank you for that, Jeff, by the way. Um, what I'd like to just tell you a little bit about is something a little more specific, but I think will, will be of interest in, um, to listeners of this postvention. I'm a specialist in physician health. From time to time, I get a phone call or an invitation to visit a grieving medical community that has lost a beloved physician. Now, they don't want me there immediately because usually what they're doing is exactly what Jeff has just described. And they, plus they have critical incident debriefing for the staff, for things like that. It's down the road, which could be anywhere from 6 to 12 weeks after the physician's death, that I'm invited to parachute in more or less and act as a facilitator. And I've done these in a number of ways, but I wanted, what I wanted to share, though, is is the importance of doing something like this because everybody comes together. Um, sometimes it's just physicians alone who knew and worked with the physician who took his or her life. 
Other times it's all of the health professionals who worked with this particular physician. But what I've found is how much they welcome um, the communion of everyone coming together. And when I do this, I always let people know that this is confidential, that they should feel free to say whatever they want, et cetera, et cetera. I do, I say very little, like in terms of, even though they may ask me a lot about sort of didactic aspects of bereavement, et cetera, et cetera. I really try to refrain from that and really be be an inviter for people to speak. And these meetings could go anywhere from 60 minutes to 90 minutes or a bit longer, and there could be one or two of them done over the course of a day. But what I've learned, though, apart from coming together, though, is the, is how raw their emotions are. And I just have gotten used to that and how primitive the emotions can be. And so it's everything that you read, you know, about bereavement, all of the emotions, but that they're in a safe place. Um, and as Jeff was mentioning a few minutes ago about blame, the blame can be so diffuse, it can also be um, uh, extreme, um, it can be misplaced, et cetera, et cetera. But what I find, though, is that they really just need to vet and the idea being all of, from all of this, though, is that they're able then to kind of continue to move forward in some way as they cope with the loss of the physician. The practical things often is that they're having to deal with perhaps patients that have lost their physician to suicide. And what do you tell these patients? If it's been a very public death, well, then that's straightforward. Um, when it's not, um, and here's a, a little tip because I've, I've heard that sometimes, sometimes a patient will say, um, you know, I'm happy to meet you. I'm so sorry that I, that I lost my doctor. Um, I've heard a rumor that she killed herself. A response to that has been what I've learned is for the, the new physician to say, I've heard the same rumor. And then it may go no further than that. And they basically then sort of talk about the individual loser. But then you, but then you do bring the patient back to, so I'm going to turn now to why you made the appointment today and, and the checkup that you're requesting for your high blood pressure or for your diabetes or something like that. So you address the issue with the patient, uh, but also in, a in some ways move on, or you could also suggest bereavement resources for them in the community. But anyway, that's just my my response because this is something a little more specific uh, that uh, it's like it's it's another type of postvention. Yeah, I think that was great, and I think it it provides a really critical example that illuminates in a lot of ways the the personal side of of what we experience after losing a patient to suicide, or in this case, as you described there, Michael, a colleague. And again, just reinforces this notion that we need to, of course, be doing the things in our systems of care to improve our practice and make sure that we're improving our outcomes. And it just speaks to the need to make sure that we're supporting people in this emotional space as well, that both are the robust yes. post-practice. Um, and, you know, because Michael had brought up that piece there where things can get really kind of tricky on navigating the, the legal and ethical pieces that surround notification. 
I wanted to just see, Jeff, if you had other thoughts or other examples um, for our listeners on how to navigate that process. On the, the topic of this distinction between administrative and clinical responses, I'm thinking about our, our general principles of providing care. And I think that that means taking care of our, our patients as well as our, our staff and, and clinicians of this beneficence, non-malfeasance, and non-malfeasance of trying not to do harm. And I think that some of the, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician, so I'm obviously sensitive to these issues. And some of the instances are cases where it is really possible to do harm uh, and sometimes significant harm to clinicians is when the administrative response focuses on here's what happened, here's what was done wrong, and here's uh, what, what should have been done. Um, I think that especially when that's happening in the stage of someone's uh, to early career or in training, that this is a this is a circumstance where you can really do something harmful to someone, and so yes. that just highlights yeah. in my mind the importance of making sure that there's some sensitivity towards the the clinical aspect of it. Right on, Jeff. I agree completely. Me as well. I mean, that's a great point. I think it also just brings it into the field of medical practice too by using those kind of ethical professional principles and thinking about what are we doing in regard to those for ourselves as well. Yeah. So, I was just going to add that I, pro I, I probably both Jeff and I have experienced um, also supervising medical students and residents. And when and if they lose a patient to suicide, which is, you know, part of the work and part of their preparation for a career in psychiatry, um, the bottom line is that those individuals are already beating themselves up plenty to, to begin with. And, and yes, you know, we can, you know, hold their hand as they go through that process and help them through explanation. But when there's some external sort of sense there that, that is of um, external blame or responsibility, that that is, um, as Jeff said, can be very destructive, uh, you know, to the, you know, to the, trainees, you know, well-being, sense of self-worth, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah, on your the question about the legal aspects around uh, and confidentiality, the, the, the idea or, or the principle would be thinking about when we're working with a patient, the, the principle that is guiding the flow of information is confidentiality, that we're trying to protect the uh, pr protect the information in a way that supports the therapeutic relationship. And so that's governed by our, our, our HIPAA guidelines. Following the patient's death, those confidentiality requirements remain in place. The, the principle that we're thinking about after a patient's suicide is the idea of who holds the privilege to authorize disclosure of the medical record. And so confidentiality while we're working with the patient, and then privilege as someone who can legally authorize disclosure of the record. And so after a patient's suicide, we're still thinking about how do we protect the confidentiality of the information, or if we're having a conversation with someone who can authorize uh, disclosure of the medical record. And so some of these the, the tricky elements around it are so, for example, we had a circumstance once where there was a patient who was participating in dialectical behavior therapy. And so when you're 
in dialectical behavior therapy, typically you're in the treatment because you're at elevated risk of suicide. And so then you're in a DBT group with other patients who are also at uh, increased risk of suicide. And so uh, if, if one of those patients dies by suicide, that's ending up affecting all of the other members of the group and all of the other clinicians who are working with those members of the group, in addition to the supervisors uh, and the group leaders. And so um, in regard to the confidentiality of, of the information, so we as the, we as the clinicians, um, because we were all working on the same team and uh, typically through the same medical system, we're sharing the information among each other. And then in deciding what to share with the other patients who are obviously observing that their um, group member is not is not there, we we could not share the confidential information from our, our treatment. And it was possible, however, to share information that was already known to be publicly available. So this person had died um, in, in a sort of a public setting. And so it was possible to find the information. And so we chose to disclose the information that um, was discoverable in public ways. Uh, Jeff, thank you for, for that. In fact, could you, I'm going to ask you something else, which is related to this, because there seems to be a hesitancy in some medical centers or in some private practices even that when a patient is lost to suicide, um, do we contact a family? If we do, do we invite them in? Um, and what ha you've already alluded to this, uh, you know, and also the protocol too, is that we check with our malpractice in carriers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but sometimes, um, individuals who are not that experienced with suicide bereavement either have have heard that you 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 mustn't speak with the family at all, uh, or um, be very tight-lipped if you do. Uh, when when it's been my experience that we actually have more um, uh, sort of more latitude or flexibility with the family than than we realize, still observing. HIPAA guidelines, still not breaching confidentiality. And my sense is that we can be extremely helpful with uh, newly bereaved family members in that meeting. But yet there seems to be so much confusion or hesitancy um, around that. And I, I just wondered if, you know, just my comments kind of spark you to um, say, you know, say a little bit more about that and what your experience or recommendations are. Sure. Yeah. Th thank you for that, Mike. The, in, in general, so I, I can tell you what happens uh, or, or what uh, might happen in general, and then um, talk about some specific circumstances uh, as well. In general, uh, the, our recommendation is to contact surviving family members to um, express sympathy, provide condolences, and provide resources for suicide loss survivors. If the family member is the one who's authorized to, uh, or holds the privilege to authorize disclosure of the record, then you can work with your risk management uh, team to either create an informed consent uh, document that they can sign to authorize the disclosure. And, and usually, 
Um, usually family members are not wanting the literal medical record. They don't want to print out of, you know, like mm -hmm. every single lab and yeah. our bulky medical records. Uh, oftentimes they're wanting some kind of narrative discussion about what happened. And so the, the, the idea of contacting the family members, it, in general, it is recommended. When I was uh, working on these um, longer sets of sample guidelines uh, that are on, on the uh, Suicide Prevention Resource Center, um, this question came up as to if the family member was not involved in the treatment at all, should the medical center be initiate proactive content or contact to uh, discuss this, uh, discuss the content with the, the, the family. And so the, our, our conservative guideline around that, um, and again, in consultation with your uh, risk management team, was that if the family has no contact with the treating team, that, that then you would not initiate the, the contact with the family and wait for the family to contact um, the, the, the treatment providers. But in general, um, if, if a family has been involved, it is recommended to reach out to the family. And then as, as you indicate, even when you don't have the authorization, your official authorization to disclose elements of the treatment, we as clinicians know things about uh, mental health conditions, about suicide risk, about risks and protective factors, about circumstances um, that um, will contribute to someone thinking about suicide, attempting suicide, dying by suicide. And sometimes it is possible without disclosing any particular details of the record to tailor your discussion a little bit around some of the circumstances of this individual patient. And so as you're speaking with the family, Oftentimes families will not, you know, who understands like federal guidelines, you know, clinicians mm -hmm. aren't always like super well versed. And so we can't expect family members. Um, so family members will sometimes uh, re require some information around federal guidelines are in place that protect the information. And I, I would recommend phrasing it not as I can't give you the information or federal guidelines prohibit me from giving you the, the information, but rather here's, here's what will need to happen and here's what I want to help facilitate so that we can have a more narrative conversation about this. Because I want, you know, I, I want to support you as the family as well. Great. I think that was so helpful. It's also a nice bit of a teaser for another episode we have if people want to really dig in and think more about managing the ethical and legal um, aspects of suicide loss. We'll have a whole episode dedicated on that too. But thank you both so much for bringing up that important element because I think sometimes that's um, what providers and clinicians um, and, and actually kind of directors of hospitals and the, the risk management people sometimes are the most anxious about, especially if a loss hasn't occurred before, it's kind of new to the system. So I think it really mm -hmm. speaks to the importance of having these types of discussions and having preparation for a suicide postvention plan even before a loss occurs. And so I wanted to loop back a little bit on what you both had talked about at the beginning in your introduction and throughout about this aspect of trainees being um, a subset of the population that 
are at even increased risk of having a patient die by suicide, given the fact that they're often involved in um, lots of clinical care, especially for those patients that are at highest risk for suicide. So I'm curious to hear a little bit both, because it sounds like both of you are involved in some training, how you help kind of trainees or folks that are early in their career, or maybe even folks later in their career that haven't experienced a loss yet, how to prepare for the possibility that one of their patients may die by suicide one day. I, uh, I, I, I teach a class um, to the psychiatry residents. What, what happened in my career was that I had a, I was while I was in training, I had a patient I was seeing for dialectical behavior therapy, and this patient did die by suicide. And because in DBT you're working on a treatment team, I actually got lots of support and felt um, felt really accompanied through the process. And so I, I I think that I have I have guilt that it went as well as it could have gone because I know that other people are not having that kind of experience. Uh, and I, so I think that what it told me is that it actually is possible to have an experience um, go, go as well as you might expect it to when you have uh, supervisors, peers, and then external leadership uh, providing support around it. And so sort of uh, out of that, I started um, presenting a, a class for the psychiatry residents about responding to patient suicide. Some of the early work around it, my observation was that as I was presenting the material about how to respond to a patient's suicide was that maybe not all, but definitely a significant subset of residents uh, appeared dazed and dissociative as I was presenting the material. Uh, and and then we had, I, I, I worked hard, actually, to invite a group of senior clinicians in to talk about their experiences of patient suicide. We divided the residents up, and then the clinicians were going to lead these small groups. Essentially, what happened is that the residents got to see their senior clinicians um, become dazed and dissociative around this unprocessed, unresolved loss, uh, and that was very disturbing, I think, to the residents. And so I think that what it ended up teaching me is that if you're going to talk about the experience of losing a patient to suicide, it was necessary. Well, basically what I later learned is that the residents, as I was talking about losing a patient to suicide, it was triggering in their minds this like rumination about their existing patients who are at elevated risk, where they were thinking all of the things that they were or were not doing right or wrong in the treatment. And so I found that it was necessary to pair the um, discussion of losing a patient to suicide with some pretty detailed training on suicide risk assessment, management, and documentation procedures so that when the residents felt like they were comfortable with their assessment, management, and documentation, then they could relax a little bit and think about um, what it might be like to lose a patient uh, to, to suicide. So that was one, one aspect uh, of what came up. I think you're, we're getting, this is so complicated. Like, like Jeff, I, uh, I'm a former training director. And so not only have I been responsible for sort of designing the curriculum, but also teaching a lot of it. Uh, we like to expose our residents didactically right away. And the first, I think I, I do two sessions with them on losing a patient to suicide in the summer of their first year. So as you can imagine, they usually hear and digest this stuff largely pretty intellectually, 
because it hasn't happened to them, but yet sometimes it has and it will happen very quickly as well. But at least they have a bit of a heads up of many of the things that are in the literature. And I use I use um, the uh, wonderful DVD called Collateral Damage, which was um, produced by a number of senior clinicians, academic clinicians in psychiatry, as well as by several residents. And it's a product that's available through the um, the, the National Body of, Associ- of, of, of Resident Training Directors. And I, I don't show the whole thing, but parts of it, and then also revisit it when I have didactics later with the residents through the course of their four-year residency. Now, that's that part. The other part, I attempted something like what Jeff is describing by putting a call out to all of our senior clinicians to um, come together and share with your residents your own previous experience of losing a patient to suicide. Well, that got virtually no response. Um, I have found that this is a subject, and I've worked in a number of different medical settings now, that even senior clinicians don't like to talk about and don't like to share it you know, with their trainees. Some do, and it can be used, as you know, very, very important in terms of role modeling and teaching, but there are others who really just don't like to revisit it. So... This is why this DVD is very helpful, because there are three senior clinicians who talk about their own losses. And, of course, I share, you know, a lot of my own previous losses. The second thing I just wanted to add quickly to this is is meeting with residents one-on-one uh, after they've lost a patient to suicide. So not only are they getting sort of – they're getting a chance to sort of work with the supervisor who looked after that patient with them – but then I'm able to meet with them, and I'm meeting currently with two of our residents who have experienced the loss of a patient to suicide over the last three months at our training center. I've been meeting with them individually, but just really, you know, in a supportive way, and I just, you know, kind of see how that goes. But it's and I'm at arm's length from the training office now as well, and I think the residents appreciate that too. And our training director. Our current training director seems to appreciate that as well, that I am able to be available to uh, to a resident who's recently lost a patient, and yet I'm not the, you know, the direct supervisor of that resident, nor am I the training director. So that's just sort of an example of various models that can be helpful in uh, in our training programs today. Now, something uh, that, that you said, Mike, I, I think it's uh, the idea of, starting um, or introducing the topic early, that's, that's such a, I mean, that sounds great to introduce it early in that, uh, in, in that first year. Yeah. We, we have, uh, I, I mean, you, you know, obviously there's not one uh, clear uh, front runner supported by randomized controlled trials uh, models. One, one thing that we've uh, tried here at University of Washington is that when I teach the session on responding to patient suicide, we include all of the psychiatry resident years. So it's uh, R1 through R4 year, and then we break. We, we show some of the, a clip from the collateral damages video, and then we divide the residents into small groups that includes residents from all of the years to talk about their experience. And then, you know, some of the senior residents can uh, share some of their experiences uh, to some of the um, uh, more junior residents. Yeah. Great. 
But a, a topic that I um, wanted to um, th- th- just bring up as well is that the idea of talking about a patient suicide, uh, the importance of bringing up the issue, and then so, so bringing it up just in general, and then also how is it discussed. I, I had a whole series of experiences where I would talk about having lost a patient to suicide. And the way that I told the story was it ended up being, it, it was not satisfying the way that I was telling it. Uh, and the reason that I know it was not satisfying is because I was giving the, this in workshop presentations. And so then I got to read the detailed evaluations that other therapists would write about me having discussed this topic. And, and so the, the, the feedback around it was, you know, you were, you were too dissociative, like you were too um, traumatized by it. I was not traumatized enough by it. I, um, oh, I'm so sorry, it ruined your weekend uh, when your patient uh, did, killed him. But just like all kinds of uh, things. And mm-hmm. and so uh, it, it was not until I actually met with Ted Reinerson here in Seattle, who writes about the, the effects of mm-hmm. violent death, and had a conversation about how do we talk about our experience, that I feel like he gave me such good advice and um, that directed me to his book and the idea of how do you tell a restorative retelling of violent death, mm-hmm. that when you have worked through some of the um, I, I keep thinking about it in my mind. I feel so guilty about what I had done. I wish other people have done had done this. I can never let this happen again. When you've worked through some of those, how can you tell a story and incorporate it into your life about, and here's what this taught me about the work. Here's what it taught me mm-hmm. about um, humanity. Here's what it taught me about the importance of supporting each other. Here's what it taught me about some of the limitations of this work. And here's how... Um, we can remain courageous uh, in, in doing the work. And so I think that um, one of the qualms that I've had about the collateral damage uh, damages video is that um, I, I think that I would like it uh, if I heard more of those restorative retelling elements in the, in the clinician's descriptions. Um, and that's, so I think that that's an area that it remains a little bit to be explored about how do we talk about suicide death in a way that restores hope or restores community um, or restores um, dignity and courage in doing this work. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just what the two of you had shared there is so amazing, so much expertise. I just want to recap for our listeners because I think it was so um, so much there that are great takeaways in terms of how do we approach this idea of training as well as kind of working with early career professionals when it comes to this topic. I think you will both outline really nicely in some ways how medical training is perhaps a bit more ahead of this compared to what I've seen um, on the more kind of psychologist side or social workers kind of thinking about counselors. But some of the best practice recommendations that the two of you talked about there is um, making sure that you're integrating both personal experience as well as didactic pieces. Um, and Jeff, I think what you highlighted was really nice too of making sure that we're providing coverage on sort of the didactic elements of suicide postvention, but also um, using that information in 
you know, tandem with suicide prevention management tips, kind of thinking about things from a medical legal side so that we're helping people feel very um, comfortable kind of going into the work at the same time. And I think another piece that was really helpful to what you both had talked about is this idea of the ultimate type of support is making sure that the supervisor is sort of checking in after a loss, but also having access to someone that's maybe a bit more outside of the, the specific clinical scenario to have another person that could be a supportive other that someone can speak to. Um, and then this last piece about professional growth and restorative telling, um, retelling of the loss, I think is really critical to taking what is a really tragic situation um, to thinking about how can we have meaning and growth out of the situation too. So thank you both mm -hmm. for all of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think one other thing, I, I know we've covered a lot of topics, um, and because the two of you are really experts in this area, I'm curious about how the two of you have gone about improving or kind of evaluating some of the suicide postvention processes um, that have happened at medical settings that you've worked um, on or, be, or have been a part of. But how do you guys go about kind of revising, evaluating your processes? Um, Michael, let's start with you this time. I haven't done any what you would call sort of formal um, revision or a study, for instance, of maybe what's been done and how can we do it better or how could we do it differently. Um, but I think it's more that I certainly see myself always as a work in progress, even at my life stage. Um, I learned I learned so much from um, well, actually things like this, doing these podcasts, but I also learned so much from um, my I, the piece of research that I've been working on for the past four years now is qualitative research interviewing family members um, who have lost a loved one to suicide and so I'm sort of tracking in a sense their observations of the individual prior to his or her death and then the course their course afterwards and then beyond I learned so much through that as to some of the ways that I think we need to do a better job, um, those of us who are mental health uh, professionals, um, uh, in terms of, uh, of just both, I, I would say, prevent, well, probably primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. I think there's just so much you know, more that we can learn. But just sort of because we're focusing on postvention today, I think that one, all, why all of this is so important? Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry. This makes me think of one other thing. When Jeff was speaking earlier, too, um, we know also from some research, and I know this through Mr. Skip Simpson, who is a member of AAS and is an attorney who um, has thought about and written uh, about risk management. Um, and family suing, and he's acted both for the plaintiff and for the defendant in malpractice litigation following suicide. And I've heard him state more than once that situations in which the treater or the treatment team actually reach out to the bereaved family, is, and as Jeff said, if that's a family that was aware that their loved one was in treatment and were involved in some degree, that you reduce the likelihood of you're actually being sued. Uh, you may not eliminate it, uh, but yet, in a sense, it's that sort of humanistic um, call 
and Jeff mentioned it earlier, expressing condolences, sympathy, and things like without at all um, making sort of self-blaming statements or things like that, uh, which, of course, is not appropriate or acceptable. Just your that that invitation and uh, 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 and work with a family like that can uh, be be you know of great solace to them too. So I, I don't think I've really answered your question directly, but uh, except to say that I think that we're continuing to learn so much, uh, and uh, um, so I think that you know, and we're going to continue to learn more. Thank you. Sure, I think that the, in, in regard to um, the, the taking steps to improve or evaluate the, the postvention processes, I, I think that th this, like many fields, is uh, under-researched, under-studied. Uh, I think that the, uh, the sample agency practices and sample individual practices that I wrote up for responding to client suicide um, have like many aspects of our field has uh, is at the level of best practices versus uh, like evidence-based uh, or researched. Um, I, I am aware of some programs for residents that uh, have some pre and post data around residents uh, being more aware of a, an existing guideline for responding to a patient suicide or residents uh, that feeling like they better understand the, the, the process. So, so, so I personally um, am operating at the level of best practices around it, meeting with individual clinicians and, and um, sort of in an iterative way, changing the way that I that tend to do like a post-vention post session with an individual clinician. Yeah, thanks. I think both of those comments uh, from each of you are so helpful in terms of where the field is at. So if we have any researchers listening or budding researchers, here's a great area for someone to dive into. But, you know, as part of the, the best practices, it's just an important element is thinking about how can we revise, how can we improve sort of at our own local level too, that it's not um, something that's one and done and you set up a plan and um, it just is cemented in stone for 20 years, but part of the best oh. practice is making sure that you're going back and thinking about how can we improve. And, and Jeff, I think when you were speaking to even your didactic and your training component, how over time you've just fine-tuned that process to continue to keep improving it kind of in new ways and in new levels um, is a nice example of that, too. Hmm. Well, I know that this topic has been so enriching. Um, we've covered a lot of areas. We probably could do in several more episodes um, just picking the, your, both of your brains. But as we kind of wrap up here thinking about last thoughts, um, last recommendations, we will have a resource section that's tied to this podcast. So definitely some of the things that you've talked about so far, we can um, pull some of those resources for our listeners to check out. But to conclude the podcast today, I wondered if um, each of you would maybe have final thoughts on how to kind of best support those listeners that maybe are early in designing a postvention process, like what kinds of recommendations you have or um, kind of words of wisdom to leave our listeners with. Um, and maybe Jeff, we'll start with you if that sounds okay. Sure. I, I think if an organization is uh, interested in developing this, I will uh, put a plug in for the 
sample agency practices for responding to client suicide that are on the Suicide Prevention Resource Center that I put together with some other uh, colleagues. It's, it's sort of intended to be an over-inclusive guideline for all of the aspects of postvention that an agency might want to incorporate. And so it's meant to be a template for what an individual agency might want to um, put together for their own purposes. And as we've been talking about today, and Sara, I think that you did a great point or a great, a great job of highlighting is that wanting to make sure that we have both the administrative component and the clinical supportive component uh, of it uh, as well. So I don't encourage people to, to take a look at those sample practices. Give me, Mike, um, at, at the, um, the, the Rocky Mountain Myrex feedback about how those look. We can always improve that over time. And then, um, keep in mind that it's going to be important to support the organization through the administrative aspects and then also to support the clinicians through the clinical aspects. And I'm going to just, I'm just going to add two quick things. Um, in addition to Jeff's, uh, what I think are wonderful um, sample agency practices as well as sample individual, individual practitioner uh, responding to client suicide at SPRC. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention on their website has two specific documents as well for when the decedent, the person who has taken their life, is a medical student or a resident or fellow in training. And like Jeff's um, protocols, they're very detailed and they're a wonderful template that sort of begin, that makes you think of all of the, uh, the, the factors right from the beginning. So those are available for, uh, and they're especially helpful uh, for medical schools and for training centers when and if they lose a medical student or uh, a resident to suicide. The second thing I wanted to mention, because we haven't touched on this at all, is personal psychotherapy. Um, when it's available and if it's available for someone who has lost a patient or client to suicide, because we've talked about a lot of the, the, you know, the systemic things or the things that we would do in the workplace, but this can be such an important adjunct. And the person, I not only have I had, you know, personal psychotherapy experience myself, but in my private practice. So over the years, I've looked after a number of physicians, not just in psychiatry, but also in emergency medicine, um, pediatrics, internal medicine, all of whom have come with the chief complaint of losing recently uh, a patient to suicide. And they have really had very little help at all. Um, and I think as private psychotherapists, uh, we could be um, of so much help to those individuals who are, who are really struggling, um, you know, with that clinician survivor loss. Yeah, thanks so much, Michael, for bringing that up, too, is I think it just really puts out there and opens up the conversation about that being another potential piece of how we can take care of ourselves so that we can continue to take care of others um, and just acceptance around that. So thank you for, for that addition. Well, I just wanted to check back in to see if um, either of you had any other kind of last thoughts here as we close out, anything that we didn't touch on that um, you want to go back to. Sorry, this is uh, Jeff. I, I would love to actually describe the structure of a session when I meet with an individual clinician uh, who, who has lost a patient to suicide. 
to what what happens in that session when um, when we're trying to provide that emotional support. Yeah, that'd be terrific. Oftentimes, uh, so a call will come in and a clinician will tell me that they've lost, lost a patient to suicide and then asking if they can come in to, to, to discuss it. And one of the, one of the first things that I will say is, is, is always, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that this has happened. It's happened to me too. And I appreciate that you're calling me. And then this medical legal aspect of it, I want you to know that because of the way that our um, that medical legal system is working, that potentially any details that you would share about the treatment itself are potentially discoverable in any, um, if there's any litigation. And so that the general recommendation is to focus on the emotional effects rather than the details of the treatment decision. If you're going to talk about or wanting to talk about the details of the treatment decisions, then as Mike indicates, personal psychotherapy or a consultation with legal counsel, those are legally protected relationships and you can speak more freely. And so that's sort of in that, that first call. So then when, when someone comes in, what, um, what, what I would like to do is, again, welcome them in and, and tell them that um, I appreciate that they've come in and then give them sort of a sample structure of um, what, what I tend to do. And so what I'll tend to do is say, um, here's how it will sometimes go. I'll ask people to give me just the plot of what happened in the treatment without necessarily any details about the individual treatment decisions. And then I'll like to go through some almost didactic material about um, aspects of losing a patient to suicide, that it tends to have a powerful emotional impact, that there are a variety of emotions, including grief, guilt, uh, anger, betrayal, et cetera. And then there are effects on clinical practice, those different roles and responsibilities, talking to the family, completing your medical record, calling risk management. And then here's ways that clinicians have gotten support. And then after doing some of those didactics, usually the clinician will have some thoughts that come up and how that uh, maps onto their experience. And then finally, I will tend to share some stories about my own personal uh, patient losses to, to suicide um, and I find that that actually is the most helpful to, to share that this has happened to me too. This is how I worked through it. And I think that things are going to get better for you. And then we sort of summarize in the end. And usually it's about an hour. That's great. Yeah, I think it's just a really nice kind of overview there of just the, the major points to highlight. Um, when doing something like that and is so accessible for supervisors too, where I think oftentimes people really want to fulfill this role of, of being there in a supportive way, but just feel really lost and kind of don't know where to start there. But kind of your framework of explaining the medical legal aspects up front to really provide the rationale of why and how it's important to talk about the emotional side and then just that structure there of thinking about what in general the treatment looked like to help you kind of understand what's going on for that person, the didactic information, the personal examples um, is just the right ingredients, I think, to something that's so helpful following a loss. If, if people want, want a brief narrated slideshow of it on YouTube, uh, you can search for Clinician Survivors of Suicide Loss. My, my company's name is called Akshlaf, A-C-H- S-C-H-L-A-F. 
Um, uh, on YouTube, I made a narrated slideshow about clinician survivors of suicide loss that goes through some of that um, information I just talked about. Yeah, that's fantastic, and we definitely can put that as part of our resources that we have with this podcast. I know I myself have um, watched that YouTube video, and it's been extremely <laughs> helpful. So thanks, Jeff, for kind of reminding us and telling us about that. We're pretty low uh, view count right now. Well, you know, I think we could really uh, increase that because you definitely, both yeah. of you have talked about so many different elements here that I think many of our listeners will be craving more. So um, the YouTube video, I think, is a really nice place where you've um, pulled together a lot of the elements that we talked about today, again, in an um, accessible fashion. Um, Mike, as we close, anything that you would like to share kind of as last um, words or anything that we haven't touched on? Uh, not, no, not really. I'm glad that we're doing this po podcast and because we're really, again, it highlights, um, um, uh, I guess it was Ed, Ed Steidman who said postvention is prevention for the next generation. And I think that this is really what this is all about. It's very important. Great. I think that's um, definitely the theme of our podcast series and some of the work that we're doing here at the Rocky Mountain Monarch. So thank you both again so much for your time and um, providing so much accessible kind of expert level information for our listeners today. Um, so thank you again. podcast is brought to you by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivor Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out our other episodes in this Suicide Postvention series.